Well, you can open your Bibles to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, and this morning we come to the conclusion of James 4, where James addresses an important issue we might label as practical atheism. Now, I'm sure you know what atheism is, the belief that there is no God. There's no God, no deity, therefore no religion. And this, of course, leads to the unavoidable conclusion that there's no such thing as absolute morality, no true sense of right and wrong. So this tends to lead toward hedonism. There's no meaning in life, so you might as well do as you please, live however you want. We would say that's a foolish and faulty worldview, though, as Psalm 14.1 says, it's the fool who says in his heart, there is no God. The existence of God is, is evident within us, and only the fool denies this knowledge, exchanging the truth for a lie, so he can live according to his pleasures. And so not just Christians, but all theists tend to disregard atheism as, as a bankrupt worldview. What's interesting, though, is that atheism is substantially in the minority, and it, it always has been. A recent poll only confirmed that still only 3% of Americans profess to be an atheist. That doesn't mean everyone else is a Christian, but very few people outright deny the existence of God or a God or, or some deity. So when it comes to just numbers, atheism is not that big of a threat to the church. However, do you know what is a, a much greater threat? It's not atheism, but practical atheism. You may wonder, what is practical atheism? Well, a practical atheist is someone who you might say claims to believe in God, but lives like they don't. They claim to be religious. They may partake in some of the outward forms of religion, but otherwise they live like there's no God. And for all practical purposes, they live like an atheist. And this type of practical atheism is a much greater problem in the church. And nationally, America's always had a more or less a Christian culture. We print on our currency in God we trust, but I think very few people live like they're trusting this God. Some people will fight hard to keep that Ten Commandments monument in front of that courthouse, but they pay very little attention to actually now obeying those Ten Commandments. And things aren't much better inside many churches where some, for example, pay lip service to the Bible as the Word of God, but then they like never read it. What would you think of someone who, who said to you, hey, look, I, I've got a winning lottery ticket. And I, the ticket's in hand. I just won like $5 million. It's real. I'm, I'm rich. And, and it's a real thing. It's a real deal. They, they've won the lottery. But they never go and cash it in. They just hold on to the ticket. They don't do anything with it. You would think them a fool. And so is the person who says, hey, look here. I've got the Bible. This is God's power for salvation and sanctification has everything I need for life and godliness. All the answers for life, but they never read it or study it or use it. That is a practical atheist. It's one thing to talk a religious talk, to talk like God and the things of God really matter in your life. And it's another thing to then live like it. And this type of practical atheism has become quite prevalent in our culture today where many abide to the key outward forms of Christianity. So they'll, they'll go to church every now and then. They'll pay God his Sunday visit. They'll listen to a sermon, sing a few songs, maybe give 10 bucks out of obligation. And they leave. And as soon as they hit those doors, that's it. I mean, they don't give God a second thought. God's word and will does not enter their minds. They're kind of back in the world. And functionally, the, the 
God doesn't live in that world. Time and the word and prayer are non-existent. Their personal worship forms not even a whimper. And then morally, they, they tend to live more like the world. They, they tolerate a whole host of sins in their life. And it's, it's not that big of a deal, though. They're religious. They've got their bases covered. But James would say that type of religion is worthless. I mean, hasn't that been one of the major themes of James as we've gone through it? That the true test of your faith is not what you say, but what you do. Do you remember back in James 1, 26 and 27, he said, If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Talk whatever talk you want, but the true nature of your faith will be revealed in how you live and what you do. And so he says back in chapter 1, verse 22, but prove yourselves to be doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. You are saved by faith in Christ and faith alone, but the point is that the type of faith that saves will lead to a transformed life. And so that's why James says back in chapter 2, Verse 14, you know, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? Faith can save, but that kind of faith cannot save because that's not real faith. Only faith in Christ saves, but that faith that doesn't lead to a changed life is a false faith. And so later he says, chapter 2, 19 and 20, you believe that God is one, you do well, the demons also believe, and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Do you realize Satan is not an atheist? He knows there's a God, he believes there's a God, but he certainly is a practical atheist. He lives like there is no God. He lives like he is his own God. And Satan's strategy seems in America to be to, to join the church, to work from the inside, leading people down the road of a, a comfortable cultural Christianity. Very happy to distract people with religion, but they don't really know Jesus. They live apart from God on a daily basis. They believe in God, but they don't honor God. They acknowledge God, but they don't obey God. That they know God exists, but they live like he doesn't. And such Christians, that they, they look more like their father, the devil. And so now in chapter 4 here in James, he's going to hit this issue one more time at the end of chapter 4. He's going to confront Christians who live like there's no God, practical atheists. And more specifically, though, here this time his focus is on the will of God. As Christians, we're supposed to be driven by God's will. We pray as we learned this morning, our Father in heaven, your will be done. Not my will, but your will be done. His will is good. It's perfect. It's righteous. It's, it's for our good. And so we should seek his will and, and seek to live it out. Many Christians talk that talk. But the problem is, practically speaking, it seems not as many 
really live out the will of God. They, they seem to care little for the will of God. And they prove this by going through life self-will. They're, they're off-roaders. The Bible shows you here's the, the straight and the narrow way of the Lord, but they're, they're, they're going to go off and do their own thing. They're, they're off-road and they're, they're going their own way, living according to their own will. Just think of some of the major decisions in life. What friends to make in school? Where to go to college? What career to pursue? Whom to marry? How to raise kids? How to conduct yourself at work? How to save and spend your money? How to take care of your aging parents? The list goes on, and these are all important decisions. And you would think the Christian would, you know, seek God's input for such decisions. But the practical atheist doesn't. They never consult the will of God. It doesn't even enter their mind. They, they don't really care. They don't seek it. They're not interested in it. Instead, they're, they're just going to do whatever seems best in their own eyes. And this type of practical atheism results in, in many people. They're just marching through life as if God is not there. He's not found in their thinking. He's not found in their decisions. He's not found in their plans. He's just not found in their life. Now, this, this may not describe you. In fact, I would hope and trust that for you here, this does not describe you. That you, you care about God's will and you do desire to know it. You seek it. You want to live it out because you believe his will is best. I, I hope and trust that is the case for you. But even still, all of us, myself included, can from time to time just lose sight of God and his will. Where it's so easy for all of us to just forget God and just operate like we're just doing our own thing. And so quickly we can default for default to doing things our own way. And so we all could use a reminder that we need to live life under the son, son of God. And we need his will to illuminate our path each and every day. And that's the nature of this final passage in James 4, this reminder to live according to the will of God. So let's all then be reminded from James. Look at verses 13 through 17, our, our passage for this morning. James 4, 13 through 17. He says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Well, from this last passage in James 4, I want you to see a a portrait of the perils of practical atheism. It's kind of a mouthful, but a portrait of the perils of practical atheism. That you may come to rely on God for everything. We'll begin with number one. It plans apart from God. Speaking of practical atheism, number one, it plans apart from God. Again, back at verse 13, he begins and says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there, engage in business, and make a profit. 
He begins verse 13 with the phrase, come now, a call to task, a, a diatribe, we might call it. And James, I mean, he's doing this throughout the whole letter. He's just calling people out. It's just it's what James is. And in this case, he's calling out the Christian merchant. He's still talking to and about the church. So I believe he intends us to think of these Christian merchants or these merchants as Christians. These are professing believers. Later on, he expects that they know the right thing to do. They're just not doing it. I don't think James is actually picking on merchants specifically, but just using them as a prime example of the problems of practical atheism. I think we all would agree, likewise, that nothing can make us forget God quite like money. All right, so what were these guys doing? Well, they're engaging in business. This picture of a traveling merchant would have been very familiar to James's audience. These were Jewish Christians scattered throughout the Roman Empire, and many had turned to a sort of an itinerant merchant lifestyle. Traveling businessmen, they seek new, new ventures, new markets. I think of like Ray Kroc. He's the man who later franchised McDonald's into the, the fast food empire it is today, but he got his start as a milkshake mixer salesman. Traveling milkshake mixer salesman. Sounds incredibly boring, but that's how we got to start. But what's really meant to get your attention here regarding these ancient merchants is that they had everything figured out. They had hatched this plan. It was literally, it sounds like a get rich quick scheme and it's all in motion. They had the timing figured out. They're going to leave today or tomorrow. The plans are all set. They had the location figured out. They're going to travel to such and such a city. They'd done their research. They hired out some focus groups. You know, they found the best location for this new venture. You know, maybe they're like, hey, we found there's a, a shortage of purple dye in Philippi. We've got a secret supplier. We can make a killing. They had the duration figured out. They're going to spend a year there. It's only going to take a year, a short time to get their business running, get a supply chain going, make a profit. And speaking of, they had the results figured out that they're going to make a profit. And that's what it's all about, right? They're there to do business and make money and lots of it. It was a surefire plan. It couldn't fail. And no businessman has, has ever said that before, right? Hey, I've got a plan to make some money and it can't fail. But anyway, the, the point again is that they have everything figured out. That's the emphasis. It's, it's all laid out before them, everything. So what's the problem here? What's the problem with this picture? Just, just, just verse 13, what's wrong? It reminds me of the, the kids' magazine highlights. And my dad always had those in his doctor's office growing up as a kid. And they've always got a page on there. It's like a farm scene. And it says, what's wrong with this picture? What's wrong with this picture? So you tell me, look at verse 13. What's wrong with this picture? Can you find what it is? And while you're thinking, I'm going to tell you what's not wrong with this picture. Just to start off to make sure you know what James is not speaking against here. And first, he's not speaking against wealthy Christians. In the following passage, chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, he's going to rail against the rich. He gives his harshest condemnation in the whole letter against the rich. But these were the, the wicked rich. These were unbelievers. They were using their riches for injustice. And he's got a lot to say against them. And that's coming up next. But 
remember earlier in chapters 1 and 2, James already made pretty plain that you know, Christians can be wealthy. It's not inherently evil to be rich. The problem comes when you start using your riches for evil. And second, James is not speaking against doing business for profit. He's not speaking against doing business for profit. He has a lot to say about the rich taking advantage of the poor, unrighteous wealth, defrauding laborers, greed. These are serious sins. But James knows it's not unrighteous to work hard, do business, make a profit. We're not forbidden as Christians from making a profit. We're simply forbidden from making a profit at the expense of others or unjust gain. That is wrong. And so in the end, we cannot be like Ray Kroc, for example, again, where through deception and deceit, he pulled the wool over the eyes of the original McDonald's brothers, and he kind of took McDonald's from them and made the empire, but he kept their name and he trademarked their name. It's a true story. We, we can't do that, but God's people are not forbidden from honest work, making investments, making profit. Think of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Job, David. God is free to, to bless his people and cause increase. The laborer is worthy of his rages, wages. And you just read Proverbs 31, the description of the excellent wife, and see how industrious she is working from home, making a profit to take care of her household, to the betterment of her household. So James is not writing against wealthy Christians. He's not rebuking doing business for profit. And third, he's not speaking against planning ahead. These are not the problems with verse 13. It's not wrong to plan ahead. The problem with these merchants in verse 13 is not that they were planning ahead. I mean, to diligently plan ahead for the future. Elsewhere in scripture, that's a virtue, not a vice. Scripture extols planning ahead for the future. Like Proverbs 6, 6 through 8. It says, go to the ant, O sluggard, observe her ways and be wise, which having no chief, officer, or ruler, prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. And to the contrary, these merchants in verse 13, they're not being the lazy sluggard. I mean, they're going to work hard. They're being industrious. Those are good things. So it's not a sin to engage in business, plan ahead, make a profit. And so just altogether understand what James is not speaking against. He's not against a savings account, a 401k. He's not against business or profit. This is not a diatribe against capitalism, as some have suggested. Although I think we would agree James would be against the greed, covetousness, and materialism found in modern capitalism, as are we. But again, that's just not what's in his mind here. So what is it? What is wrong with this picture? And to answer, what's wrong with verse 13 does not have to do with what's here, but with what's missing. The problem is what's missing in this picture. And what is missing? Uh, Primarily, God. God is not found in verse 13. That's the problem with the picture. These merchants do no wrong in planning ahead to engage in business, but they do wrong in failing to take God and his will into account. The problem with verse 13 is, is that God is simply absent from all their plans. 
These merchants show zero concern for, for God and his will. Theirs is a worldly self-confidence and self-reliance. They express the American spirit of pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps, that they're going to succeed and they're going to do so based on pure willpower alone. But that, that's not how it works. I mean, who are you? What can you do apart from God? Who gave you your mind and the wisdom to engage in business? Who enables your opportunities? And then who gives you life and breath? Who sustains you? If God withdrew his sustaining grace for a second, would not you and your plans immediately fall apart? God is happy to bless his people. It pleases him to bless his people. But he wants faith and worship. And faith and worship are both both expressed in a constant reliance upon God and his will. A recognition of his power and a seeking of his will. And so we find from these merchants the, the folly of the sin of presumption. They're presuming to be in control of their lives. And this really boils down to a form of pride, which has as its foundation a failure to recognize God, to give honor where honor is due, to, to seek his will. And this pride, it's, it's opposite to faith. You can't have this type of self-reliant pride and faith at the same time. Remember, part of the, the essence of faith, Hebrews 11.6, says, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. And the Christian is one who believes that he is, so there is a God, and then also seeks him, right? They live like there is a God. And so I, I kind of want to know what this God has to say about this decision. That's, that's a part of faith. I mean, you already spent part of your life before salvation living according to your own will. And I, I trust you don't want to do that anymore because you see where it got you. Nothing but lost. And so now you, you seek him and his will for all things. Not just business, but every decision in life. You, you should want to know what does my heavenly father have to say about this. To fail to do so, well, that is practical atheism. And it's perilous. Watch out. Especially considering a second point of this practical atheism, number two, it ignores the uncertainty of life. It ignores the uncertainty of life. He says in verse 14, Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. The second peril of this type of practical atheism is that it ignores the uncertainty of life. The pride of man likes to think that he's in control of his own life, his own destiny. But in reality, human life is incredibly uncertain and fragile. So James says, you you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. I don't really watch the news. So I heard this from someone here at church. But not too long ago, a local pastor was killed. I'm sure most of you have heard about it. Dale Paulson was the pastor of Morro Bay Presbyterian Church. And on Sunday morning, November 18th, he announced his retirement. He served for a long time. He was 67 years old. And he's finally going to retire. 
But the very same evening, Sunday evening, after announcing his retirement, he was struck and killed by a drunk driver. The same evening. And just think of all he had planned. And for those of you here who are retired, I can imagine that the day of your retirement was a day of planning and kind of dreaming. Like, what's next? And I can only imagine in his mind, he thought he was going to like read some books, maybe write a book, travel, spend time with the grandkids, do work around the house, so on. These would all be natural things for us to plan. It's not wrong to do so, but you better make those plans with open hands, trusting the will of God, because you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You may not even see tomorrow, any one of us. You just don't know when your number will be called. It's like David testified, Psalm 139, 16. He says, in your book were written for me all the days of my life, all the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. God has ordained your birth date and your death date. It's not unknown to him. It's just unknown to us. But we need these wake-up calls on the uncertainty of life. Not that we live in fear. We don't. As Christians, we have hope. We have joy. We long to depart and be with Christ. For that is very much better. But at the same time, these reminders, they serve to draw us to the will of God and his plans. We don't know the future. We cannot presume on the future. So we're just going to hold all of our plans with open hands. We're trusting his will and seeking his will. The uncertainty of life doesn't stop us from planning, but it should stop us from presumption where we live as if we're in control. That is not the case. So James adds, you're just a vapor that appears for a little while and vanishes away. It's a timeless illustration. It's all throughout scripture. Everybody knows it. You boiled a cup of water. You know the illustration. You see the water vapor, the steam rising. It swirls around for just a second, and then it's gone, never to be seen again. And that's the picture of our lives in the, in the grand scheme, just so short, so fleeting. Psalm 103, 15, 16 says, As for a man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. But when the wind pass, passed over it, it's no more. And its place acknowledges it. No longer. We all know that the green hills we see now after the rain in just a month will be brown. It just doesn't last. And the uncertainty and the brevity of life simply means that whatever you think and whatever you feel, you're not in control. You're not in control of your life. William Henry Harrison became the ninth president of the United States back in 1841. He had big plans for his presidency. He's going to strengthen the economy after the depression of 1837. He's going to reestablish the bank of the U S He's going to strengthen Congress and he's going to make more peace with the native Americans. He was elected on this agenda, big plans. He was inaugurated March 4th, 1841. It was a cold and wet and rainy day. He wore neither a hat nor a jacket. And he gave the longest inaugural address at almost two hours. Then, a mere 33 days later, Harrison died of pneumonia. And he still holds the record of being the shortest reigning U.S. president, 33 days. Now, he probably didn't get the pneumonia from the inauguration. 
in reality, but it just still goes to show you how quickly your, your time can be up. And then what becomes of all your plans? They're gone. They disappear. Does this mean Harrison was wrong in making plans or these merchants or us? No. But it is wrong to make plans as if you are in control of your life and your future. That is the sin of presumption. That planning is folly. That's how the atheist makes plans. As if he's the master of his own destiny. But he will learn the hard way that God is real. He's in control. And a day of, <clears throat> a day of accounting is coming. For us though, we aim to live and plan. Understanding that our lives are in his hands. And this is meant to foster a critical dependence on God in life. Not an independence where we don't want to rely on ourselves, but on God. And this is fitting for those of the faith because it's, it's a hallmark of practical atheism to boast in self-reliance. And this forms the third peril of practical atheism. It boasts in self-reliance. It plans apart from God. Number two, it ignores the uncertainty of life. And thirdly, now it boasts in self-reliance. He says in verse 16, but as it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. He's continuing to call out the one who lives like a practical atheist. And this includes his boasting. He boasts in his arrogance, meaning he's taking pride in his ability to foresee the future. He boasts in his forecasting in advance and how his plans are going to go so well, as if it's a done deal. Think back to these merchants from verse 13, and they had it all figured out. The time, the place, the duration, the outcome. It's, it's going to work. It's a done deal. And so they, they were celebrating in advance almost. They were boasting. And this boasting just only amplifies when plans succeed. Because, you know, sometimes that happens. Your, your plans work out, right? They go they succeed in business. They make that profit. And then they really boast. And look how, look how smarter they are. They're the smartest guys in the room. How much wiser. You know, I met someone once who had just made a killing in the stock market. He really had forecasted things just right. And I think he made half a million overnight on one investment. But then came the boasting. As if he were just so much smarter than everyone else. So much wiser. So much better than everyone else. And this is boasting in arrogance. It's really a misplaced confidence. And the problem is such people are, they're betting on themselves. And that's not a safe bet. They're boasting in self-reliance, in their own intellect, their own ability. The ancient Greeks called this hubris. That's a misplaced pride in self. But as you know, Proverbs sixteen eighteen says, that type of pride comes right before the fall. And God has a way of humbling those who walk in pride and self-reliance. Proverbs 27.1 says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. You know, even if your plans succeeded, the, the humble response of faith would say, Well, you know what? I may have succeeded, but... This is still God. He, he gave me this opportunity. He opened these doors. He gave me my mind. He gave me the wisdom to know when to act, to know what to do. 
He arranged this in his providence. And, you know, furthermore, I, I owe my life to him. My every breath is on loan. And so this is, this is all by his grace. Your plans may succeed, but it leaves no room for boasting in self. You owe all things to God and therefore give thanks. Wasn't that James himself who said back in chapter 1 verse 17, every good thing given and every perfect gift comes down from above, coming down from the father of lights. So the believer should be different. We receive all good things as a gift from God and therefore we give thanks. It's only the atheist or the practical atheist who boasts in self-reliance. And it's only the practical atheist who would insist on going his own way. And so this leads to the final peril of practical atheism. Number four, it rebels against God. Number four, it rebels against God. Verse 17. He says, therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. This verse implies that the merchants knew better. They knew that they should give recognition to God and trust him in their planning, but they didn't do it. They didn't seek his will. They knew the right thing to do, but didn't do it. And that is sin. The same goes for us. You know better. You know that you should be taking God's mind and will into consideration in your plans. But if you fail to do that, just kind of do your own thing. Well, that is sin. It's the sin of omission. There are many sins of commission. These are the, the active things we do. This active rebellion against the will of God. It gets all the attention. You know, things like theft and murder and adultery and anger and greed and so forth. They, these form an active rebellion against God's will. But there are alternatively sins of omission that are just as serious to God that the good things we fail to do. Like the command to honor your father and mother. When you fail to do that, well, that is a sin of omission. And it's just as serious an offense to God. And so applying this to us, James is making clear that we should not live like the practical atheist. We should bring God into every decision of life. We, we should seek his will and live it out. And in case you didn't know that, well, now you know. The Christian is meant to seek God's will each and every day for, for everything. But the question is, will you, will you do that? Will you do the, the right thing? Will you keep God always in the picture of your life so that his will is not missing? But I think how often all of us can fall short, and even if it's just for a moment, live like that practical atheist. And it always leads to disastrous results. You know, I knew an older couple who, they finally found their dream retirement home. It was this little cabin in a mountain community, very small mountain community, and they were, they were very excited to move, to retire, to just go there. They were kind of like the merchants. They had it all figured out. The time, the place, the duration, the outcomes. They found that, that final dream home for them to live out the rest of their days. Very excited. So off they went. Now they knew better, but they never really inquired if this was the Lord's will to move to such and such a place. And that oversight led them to one unforeseen consequence. 
namely that there was not a single good church anywhere close to this new home. Such a tiny mountain community, like not even close, no good church at all. Physically, it was a, a beautiful land. Spiritually, it was a barren land. And they realized their mistake after they moved. It was too late in a sense. And if only they had taken God's will into account beforehand, it would have at least led them to consider the proximity of a, of a solid local church to their dream home. And so it goes for all sorts of decisions in life. Should you marry this person? Should you have kids? Should you have more kids? Should you quit your job to start that business? Is it the right time to retire? Should you find a new church? Your kids are getting caught up with some bad friends. Is it time to intervene? Your brother-in-law presents you with this opportunity to buy an investment property. Should you join him? Now, all the various plans and paths of life, you don't want to be like the practical atheist. You're just skipping along like, I'll do whatever seems right in my own eyes taking God not into account. I hope you see that the perils of this portrait, it does not end well. Going through life, ignoring God, ignoring his will, which is given to us for his glory and our good. If you just ignore that, it's not going to go well for you. And the Lord knows how to frustrate the plans of the rebel, the one who's rebelling against his will and who knows the right thing to do to seek God's will but does not do it. Especially for those who know him, though, it's, it's just far better to just live, to actively live under his guiding hand. And so in contrast now to the, the way of the practical atheist, we're going to finish up by kind of sneaking back to verse 15. If you notice, we skip verse 15. And we find in contrast the, the other side, the other way. It's the way of the believer, the way of the Lord. And so let's finish with this last verse. It's a big instead, in contrast to the practical atheist, verse 15 should be us. And so he says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. So you think about the uncertainty and the brevity of human life. And you think about God's total control and sovereignty over all things. It's not meant to produce in you fatalism where you think like, well, I have no control. God's going to do whatever he wants to do. So I might as well do nothing. Like, no, that's not the recourse here. We still are called to plan and live and act. But these truths, though, they're meant to produce in us a humble dependence on God for all of our plans. So James says, what you ought to say is, if the Lord wills, Dio Valente. As the Puritans used to say, Latin, meaning God willing. Right? We're, we're going to live. We're going we're gonna to plan. We're going to succeed. God willing. We're going to go to such and such a city. We're going to make a profit there if the Lord wills. Or, you know, we're going to have more kids. We're going to adopt a kid if that's the Lord's plan. So that's what we're talking about here. It's a submission of your plans to God and his will. Now, I want you to know this, this phrase is not some magical incantation. You find a lot of Christians who they'll verbalize the phrase, you know, if the Lord wills, but they live a very self-willed life. It's not enough to say a few words. Remember, James is not about talk, but about action. And look, there are plenty of instances where the apostles use this phrase. Like Acts 18, 
Paul is saying farewell to the Ephesian elders. And he says, hey, I'll return to you soon if God wills. And so he made plans. He planned to come back to Ephesus, but he submitted those plans to God and his timing. And that's appropriate. But at the same time, there are also many other examples where the apostles made plans, but they did not say God willing. They did not verbalize the phrase, if the Lord wills. That, that's not exactly what matters. The heart attitude behind your plans is what matters. And if the Lord wills, it's not meant to be a glib formula, but a ruling principle in our lives that governs our actions. This is to be to us a prevailing reminder that we're servants of Christ. We're living for his will. Like we pray it, we're supposed to live that. His will be done. So I'm just going to submit all of my plans to that will and inquire of the will of the Lord. His will is best. And so this, this phrase, it's really a mentality and it forces us to evaluate all of our plans from a biblical perspective. That's a good thing, right? Is the, is the Lord willing? That, that mentality forces us to evaluate all of our plans from a biblical perspective. And we need that. But don't you think you need that more? Maybe you inherited some money. You want to buy a new car. You never had a new car paid in full. It's not wrong to do so. It's not wrong to buy a new car. But don't you think you should at least stop and consider like, you know, what would the Lord have me do here? How might the Lord want me to spend this money? I am willing at least to submit my will to his will, whatever that might be, because his will is best. And then you would take steps in that place of submission. You take steps to seek his will. You're not going to hear a voice from heaven, but you're going to search the scriptures for his guidance and wisdom where his will is found. You're going to pray for wisdom, like James 1 said. You'll seek godly counsel and discern the the will of the Lord. And then you can act accordingly. You can do so with a clean conscience, that you now know the right thing to do, and you're doing it. You know, we're talking about submitting all your plans, interests, and desires to the Lord. You lay them at his feet, in essence saying, Lord, just... Just take these plans, my heart's desires, but you do with them what you will. If you are for them, let them succeed. If you are not for them, show me and and help me change. And this is that the humble way of faith that pleases God and it it blesses us. And honestly, if God is not for our plans, do you really want to go through with them anyway? Right? Psalm 127.1 says, unless the Lord builds the house, they who labor and they labor in vain who build it. You know, the atheist or practical atheist lives like there's no God, which means he thinks that this life is his home. This life is the only life. It's all that matters. So he lives for the here and now, the passing pleasures of the world. It's what he lives for, storing up treasures on earth. It's what it's all about. Again, that can be a Christian. They're just living like a practical atheist. They're living like, this is my life, my only life. I'm going to live for this life only. But if this might be you, as James would say, be warned. Because scripture says this is a perilous path. I want you just to listen along to a parable from Jesus. It can't be any more relevant. It's Luke, 16, or Luke 12, 16 through 21. Just listen. Luke 12, 16, he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man was very productive. 
And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I will do. I'll tear down, tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now, who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The essence of this parable is all about this man who, he's living like this is his best life now. Not living in light of eternity or the next life. Like, this is the best life. This is the only life. You don't want your best life now. You want your best life next. And that comes by recognizing God. You place your faith in him that, that he is. That he's creator. He's sustainer. He's savior. This is the God who sent his son Christ to die for us on the cross. Rise from the dead to pay for our sins. That we might be with him in the next life. And in this life, I might add. And only those who trust Christ with their very lives are going to be granted that eternal life. And so I pray you've done this. That you have come to that place where you're not living like this is the only life. And even at that, that you're in control of this life. Neither are true. There is coming a judgment, but also a salvation. And so turn to Christ. And so, and, and so doing, you'll find an eternal life plus an eternal perspective. And for those of us here as, as his disciples who've gained that eternal perspective, that this faith transforms now how we understand this life and then how we live it. What is this life all about? Before salvation, just serving self. After salvation, we realize serving the Lord. And now we are merely his humble servants. He, he saved us. He died for us. We've been bought with the price, redeemed. We're now just here to serve him with however many days he gives us. We are here to serve him and his will. But that, that is a glorious thing. We find joy and blessing in serving our master's will. His will is good. It's a lot better than our will. And it's a good thing to serve our master. He is good. His will is good. And we understand life is short. Our time could be up any moment, but we transform the uncertainty of life into a prayer. Like Psalm 90 verse 12, Lord, teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. You know, life is short. We are not in control of the future. We don't know what the future holds, but we know who holds our future. Those old sayings, one of my favorites, we don't know what our future holds, but we know who holds our future. And so we're, we're going to trust him and we will entrust our lives and our plans to him. And in return, we gain the surpassing peace of Christ, which the world can't access. They can't understand. And we know that we're safe in the hands of God. We can rest despite the uncertainty of life, knowing that the, the all powerful God, he, he has us. He's, he's with us. He's for us now in Christ. We need not fear. And he will guide us safely into that next life, his eternal kingdom. And this gives us supreme comfort in times of uncertainty. Because we know this is not our home. Our home is with him. 
And so until that day, we're going to pray, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is, as it is in heaven. We're going to pray it, we're going to mean it, and we're going to live like that's true. We're going to seek his will that we might be about his business. And we're going to live like there is a God in heaven, because there is. We're going to live like that God is with us every day, because he is. And we're going to live according to that God's will because it's best and, and it is. And this is what it looks like to walk the, the way of the Lord, that the straight, the narrow way of the Lord. So a fitting conclusion then would be that the famous words of Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. These are words to live by. Let's do that and let's pray. Our Lord and, and Father in heaven, we, we do want to live by those words. We do not want to rely on our own understanding. How, how feeble is our understanding? Do we know the future? Do we know all things? We are so bound by ignorance and, and our flesh. But you are the God who knows all things. You made all things. You know all things, including the future. Our days are numbered and they're in your hands. Why would we ever exchange your will for ours? Why would we ever not seek your guidance in life? Furthermore, you're good. You have our best interest in mind. You, you desire for us to know Christ, to be like Christ, to be conformed to his image, and to be with you. Why would we ever not want to follow you, follow you and follow that plan? Lord, you've revealed your will. It's in scripture. You've given us the guidance we need. It's true. Everything we need for life and godliness is in your word. That's where we go to find that will. And so I pray we're convicted this morning to, to be men and women of the book where we are turning to you in the word and prayer to, to discern your will. We pray your will be done and we want that. We believe it. And I pray now it's, it's true in our lives that we're going to live like there is a God in heaven and we are under his will. And it is good because it is. And bless us as we seek to honor you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.